I guess the, I guess the conversation up here um, for people who want to be disparaging about Gerrard is that you know three years um, he's now the longest serving manager in Scotland three years and he's only won one trophy but I think the on the other side of that um, the performances in Europe have been phenomenal from Rangers over the last three years you know they've they found they found a way even even when they were stuttering a wee bit in Scotland they'd found a way to play in Europe um, that was hugely successful. I can't, I can't remember one game other than the last, the, the Leverkusen game, you know, they were so heavily outplayed. Out that was probably, after after having played a substantial amount of European games, coming through all the qualifying ties as well, um, and beating some really, really good teams in it, home and away, um, I think they just got to that game and that, that was probably the limit at that point. I mean, Leverkusen are a much better team. So it was no real it, it was no real shame to go out at that point. But I think if anything his style of play suits a European game more than it maybe suits the domestic game. They find they find it difficult to break down deep lying defensive teams. Um because like 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 a lot of teams faced with that if you've got an organised team against you, you really need a wee bit of imagination. And, and sometimes I think Rangers going forward don't have that. But when they were playing in Europe, um, they, they, weren't, they weren't facing that all the time. Well, it gives people something to talk about in the blue bit of Glasgow. Yeah. And when I was young, 25 years ago, uh, I remember the nine in a row Rangers. Oh, segue. Uh, let's go back to 1996. I didn't even intend that segue. I've done so many of these. I can seg in my sleep. <sighs> There's only one Danny Garvey came out digitally at the end of 2020 and physically on my birthday uh, at the beginning of 2021. It is set in 1996 uh, up in Barshaw, which is fictional, I imagine. Uh, I don't like the idea of fictional places. And and maybe this is a relic with architectural training, but um, for, for... reasons of trying to place a football team into uh, a real life uh, environment with real teams that obviously the team had to be fictional uh, and therefore the place that they came from had to be fictional or else I would have had to have picked one of the one of the real places you know well I had to look up whether Bill Shankly did play so you got me there <laughs> so that verisimilitude <laughs> Is so good. Talking of architects, uh, one of my favourite TV characters, Ted Mosby, as played by Josh Radner, was an architect. I don't know if you're a fan of How I Met Your Mother or your kids may be fans of, of the show. Um, I've seen that a couple of times, but I couldn't have told you that. He um, went, he what, went what? independent and he had Mosbyist designs and he'd uh, right. design buildings in, in New York. I'm not going to ask about building a plot and storyboarding and getting from A to B to C, but it helps that you've built stuff. So by, by with a hobby of writing plots and stories and fleshing out characters, it's, it's world building just with words and images. Yeah. And you're, you're one of the first people who've, you know, I haven't had to really explain that to. There's loads and loads. If I'm going to, if I'm going to, if there's a sweepstake for being asked a question, uh, you know, by an audience at a writer's gig, it's guaranteed to be, but you're an architect during the day and a writer at other times. Where's the synergy between those two? And I've always looked at that and thought, really? That that seems pretty obvious to me. You know, if if you're writing, you're, you're creating 
characters and storylines to, to populate a context. Um, if you're an architect, you're creating a context to respond to what people are looking for in that context. You know, it, it seems entirely similar to me. You know, yeah. Um, but the the place thing has always been pretty important, and and I, maybe that's why, as well as place and time, sometimes you you see real people who are part of a particular story. If you if you're trying to make a, a certain point, will will start to come into come into become part of the plot. I don't think it, it happens much less with Danny Garvey and some of the other uh, stories mm. I've got because I think essentially at, at the heart of it all it's, it's really about family relationships. Yes. And a small family like that, it's not, you know, it's not like the Waltons or anything like that. It's, it's quite a f- dysfunctional, fractured uh, relationship based on secrets. Like the Fast and the Furious franchise, or to a lesser degree, Shakespeare. I've, I've seen one Fast and the Furious movie, and every six minutes they do say family. It's about family. This is really, <laughs> These films, which are garbage, they have audiences that I dream of for this show. They're serving people yeah. what they want. And certainly reading Danny Garvey, or at least the first half, I don't want to spoil myself before uh, shelving it on the football library amongst many other football books, uh, which we will talk about. But I did trail. uh, Which football star helped you with the colour of um, painting this world of junior football in Scotland in the 1990s? The answer is? Um, Alan Ruff. Whom I know by name, and I know he's a goalkeeper. I don't know much about him. Uh, Well, Alan Alan Ruff um, was... I suppose arguably Scotland, Scotland's greatest goalkeeper. Alan Ruff was the keeper uh, for when the Scotland squad moving in Argentina. Is is got a really a really good reputation as a really decent guy. Um, he played with famously with Partick Thistle and then Celtic Hibs and Celtic. I sought out Alan as. In, nine, in the middle, in mid nineteen nineties, Alan was the manager of one of the uh, one of the most famous um, Ayrshire junior teams. And if you if you're asking about the time and why nineteen ninety six, mid nineties um, Scottish junior football was probably as um, at, at its at its height, you know. And I think its relationship in Ayrshire to might be the same in other parts of Scotland, but its relationship in Ayrshire to the, the communities that it came from was um, all, almost based on that community's identity itself. You know, a lot of the a lot of the football clubs had grown out of the mining industries, and then you know after the the eighties and the decimation of that industry, in some cases um, the football club was the only thing people had to you know, to represent their community and their identity, you know. It was kind of that relationship I kind of wanted to tap into as well. But Alan was a manager at that time, and I started by asking him about um, just factual things, you know, like can just keep me right on um, how much the players get paid, how did, how did you finance a club, how did he become the manager, was there, you know, just... That whole background thing about how a club actually operates at that time, you know, and the difficulties that they'd faced, but um, it just it just sort of went 
started telling me all these phenomenal stories, <laughs> most of which I couldn't use. Um, uh-huh, yeah. But it just it, it just reinforced the fact that the the ability to set a story and and uh, against that background was really rich with ideas and rich with all these different emotions and storylines. And I think that's pro- I touched on it earlier on, but. That's probably one of the dangers of writing a book about football is that the football dominates and overtakes, you know. Mm. Um, and and for this one, I think it, it kind of really needed to be almost a bit of the background story, you know. Yes, like the TV show Dream Team, Morelos 1-0. Uh, would you... Um, we won't oh, get into good. that. Um, Alan Ruff's book, My Story, The Rough and the Smooth, came out in 2006, which was when he had a six-day-a-week football phone-in. His profile has never been higher. Now is the time to tell his story. Would you say that The Rough and the Smooth would pass what I call the Jamie Vardy bar to get into the football library? Do you reckon it's better than Jamie Vardy's memoir? Oh, I, I, I've, I've never read it. Oh. So, um, but I'm going to say that Definitely, yes, on the strength of Alan's character as a storyteller. The Vardy book is fine. It's just he's, he's got a story to tell, and I'm sure uh, we'll have a more interesting story when he packs up. I remember vividly, oh, should I tell you where I read it? Yes, in Boston, on a boat, I read Alan Hansen's book, A Matter of Opinion. Now, I knew Hansen because he was on the telly, but he comes across mm-hmm. as one of the best golfers I've ever read about. I mean, footballers. He was a very good footballer. Um they're just just the the way that him well, the, he and the, 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 the Liverpool team. You do know the connection between Alan Hansen and Alan Roth. Uh, were they both left out of a Scotland squad? No, I think they both played. At, I'm going to say this, and then probably get corrected for it later. But one of the most famous Scottish Cup victories ever was Partick Thistle beat Celtic four one, and and at some point, and I. I thought, I may be wrong here, but I thought both of them were playing in the Partick Thistle team. They both both played for Partick Thistle, and I think they were both playing in that cup final. In 1977? One, maybe. Would Alan Hansen have been too young? He may have been too young. Uh, 1971 is correct. Very good. Uh, The teams... They were were Partick Thistle teammates for a long time. You're quite right. They scored four first... Jesus! Four first-half goals... Uh, the Celtic team had Dalgleish, Johnston, Gemmell, Hay, Macari, yep. Williams in goal. 62,000 people. Wow. Yes. Uh, when Thistle received the cup, thousands of Celtic fans stayed to applaud them. No, nobody, nobody believed that that, was, that that result was even possible. In 71? Uh, even, even after it 50 years ago. So is that going to be celebrated? In fact, I might as well put this up. Around that time, do you reckon that's going to be celebrated in Glasgow in Partick? I, well, I would have thought so. I mean, um, Partick, uh, Partick has a lot of great club. They've got a fantastic fan base. Um, I think there are lots and lots of people have got sympathy for Thistle because of the way the season ended. You know, I mean, I, I think. I, again, I can't remember the exact dates, but Thistle were in a relegate the relegation position when the SFA or the Scottish League stopped the league. Thistle had a game in hand and were two points away from the playoff place. But because the decision was taken to cancel the league at that point, Thistle had to be relegated. You know, and a lot of people thought that was really unfair. 
and the, the same happened to Hearts in the yes. Premier League when, when the season was finished but Hearts were so far behind that I think Thistle really had a claim that if they'd, if they'd won the game in hand they wouldn't have been in that position they'd never get a chance to play it so apart from the fact that they're probably everybody's everybody's favourite Glasgow club if you're not a fan of the, the old firm there was a lot of deserved sympathy for Thistle because they were in that position so I, you know, personally I was really chuffed My soft when they spot got for- Parted. Oh, they, they did get voted in, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, they're back up, and I think at the moment they're at the top of the first division. So they've, start, they've started, I know there's only a couple of games, but they've started this season really well. Well, let's hope Kilmarnock go up with them. I remember um, there was a kid oh. called James Cragen who played for Edinburgh University who signed for Partick as a pro. Uh, so I always looked for Partick's results. Um, and yeah. I, I will now because I, I need to. I'm trying to speak to people who follow a lot of the Scottish clubs. I realise that Pitch Publishing, who are publishing my book next year on the FA Youth Cup, they publish a lot of books about Celtic and Rangers because that's where the yeah. audience is. Because as I saw the other week, there were 12,000 people who were at the Kilmarnock Celtic game at the end of the 2018 season and 65,000 at Celtic Park or Ibrox. So just the disparity between the two. And then talking of disparity, there's another segue. Um, The book starts brilliantly. You've got parallel narratives going on. Have you read that in any other book? Because it it threw me initially, because I'm not used to reading that much fiction, but you're inside two heads at once, which was smart. No, I hadn't hadn't really been aware of it anywhere else, but I, I couldn't... There's two things going on here. There's Danny's own... Um, I think one of the, the epithets at the beginning is um, the, that's terrible. I've got the book here. Oh, wait, there's the, there's the a George Joy Division book. lyric and there's a, is it a George Dutch, Orwell quote. The yeah, the George Orwell one's probably the most important one there. Um, and, it, and it kind of leaves, if people read into that before they start, it probably leaves the reader already thinking, is Danny a reliable narrator of his own life story here or is he unreliable? And I think it starts off as being very sympathetic, very reliable, and he's in a situation that he doesn't want to be in reluctantly and it's not his fault. And, you know, I think the importance of the four characters who take a chapter each and paint a slightly different picture, um, you know, as as you start to move through the book, you begin to realise that, you know, what what Danny's telling you is only what he wants you to, to hear, you know. Um, and only what he and, wants to hear. And, yeah. and only what he wants to hear, you know, and that whole um, trauma that he's suffered has blocked out the reality of a lot of the situations. So they're, they're, they're kind of chipping away at you to make you think, well, who, who, am I, who am I supposed to believe here, you know? And that Orwell quote is, a man who gives a good account of himself is probably lying since any life, when viewed from the inside is simply a series of defeats. So you've got Danny and Higgy, and I got right in, you get right inside Higgy's psyche, is incredibly detailed, uh, and how sorry you feel for Higgy, who's, um, who feels that uh, Barshaw, the club, is the reason for his existence. Uh, Danny says, oh, I wish I could be like that, where rational thinking is displaced by passion and loyalty. Uh, chapter two is Damo. Chapter three is Nancy. Chapter four is Raymond, whose role in the book is pivotal because um, crime, uh, redacted, redacted, read the book. 
Um, so you've got yeah. all these narratives, all these plates being spun, and yet around it you're reporting on football matches. Was it fun to write those reportage Roy of the Rovers scenes? Yeah, um, I, I, I think, you know, I, I'm acutely aware of the fact that I, I started writing books that I wanted to be entertaining, you know, um, and part of the entertainment is, you know, trying to, trying, not, not necessarily writing jokes, but trying to write things that are, are funny, you know, are funny to me at least. Um, but again, that whole balance of, you know, is it is it just a comedy book? You know, they they, they don't get taken very seriously. I, I felt that if it, if it was just about the comedy, then any talent I had as a writer for expression, you know, for expressing emotions and, and trying to draw that out of people would potentially get lost. So all of the books are really a balance between, you know, things that are, are funny and in, and in some cases unintentionally funny. Mm-hmm. The serious aspect of life and, you know, famously... Glaswegians will tell you that you know that humour um, and, and and ability to laugh at yourself is one way of maybe trying to stay sane when everything's falling apart and about you, and, and that's definitely what's behind most of these books. You know, there, there are, are pretty difficult scenes and emotions in all of them, but there has to, for me anyway, there has to be some light and shade here. You know, and. The lightness, I think, sometimes came from describing the, foot, the the activity that was going on in the football. Because to be honest, that you know, when you strip it back, junior football is a pretty funny thing, and it's funny because everybody t- everybody takes it seriously. You know, perhaps more seriously than it needs to be. But the the, the ridiculousness of football is played out in and uh, probably in smaller grounds and smaller. You know, oh, yes. even that, to go back to Rangers, the, the, one of the one of the funniest things I've seen in the last few years, um, and there's been a lot of them, I have to say. But when Rangers went down to the bottom of the division, one of the first games they played, there was a clearance from one of the uh, defenders that went into a hedge that runs around the edge of an athletics ground, and obviously because it was quite a big deal for Rangers to be going to the, the lower ground Sky Sports where they're covering it from every angle and not to kick this ball at the edge. That's <laughs> just, you know, that, that's, that, that's my abiding memory of the last five or ten years of watching Rangers. And even though, obviously, pleased, they won the league last year and they're back in a situation where they're playing decent football, and I don't think it's in any way embarrassing to have forgotten about that, you know, or to, to to have that as part of your party as this part of the history of the club now, you know? Absolutely. Well, it was Newco's first few games. But again, we're not going to go there because we, we built up a very good rapport. You, you, here's something that I hope works as an analogy. Chiaroscuro. Is that not an architectural term for letting light into a building or something to do with shadows? Out here to, to a extent where I, I should know that and I don't. I'm gonna um, no, it just I, I don't know why it was buried in the recesses of my mind. It is something to do with lighting. It's just oh, it's yeah. more to do with drawing and painting and visual art. But it's just as you were talking about tones and the surreal and the sublime and the the funny, it just made me think of that. So I think I've shot myself in my own foot. But what <laughs> I wanted the the point I really wanted to make was that Chris Brookmeyer, uh, Ian Rankin. Um, John Niven. There's a whole series of really, really great Scottish writers who have who all seemed a Muriel Gray 
and uh, Val McDermid, they all seem to have um, liked and admired your work. Would you say that you are David F. Ross? Not in your work as David Ross, the architect, but just reading this book, as a Scottish author, it's very good. You deserve to be held in the Brookmeyer Niven category. Maybe not the rankings, you. you haven't sold that many books. <laughs> Thank you, that's very kind of you to say. Yeah, I, I, yeah I'm, I'm guys from the west of Scotland are always a bit, you know, you don't want to get above yourself or anything like that. It's, it's inbuilt into the psyche, uh, you know, that whole I knew your feather comment. <laughs> I'm really pleased with Danny Garvey more than maybe more than the others in terms of I think it was I think it was a bit of a leap forward for me, you know, in terms of thinking differently about structure and language and, you know, you mentioned the point there about parallel voices and things. Just thinking differently about how you tell a story. And I don't I don't mean that to sound like the others are just straightforward chronologically to be, you know. I had to think really carefully about how, you know, that, that story would work from the single person perspective and I, that that's a pretty obviously you you highlighted that yourself. It's a pretty challenging thing to have a single point perspective for an entire book of seventy thousand words or, or whatever. So finding ways in which the readers can understand that what they're being told isn't you know necessarily the facts of a matter. I think I, I was really pleased with how that uh, how that kind of worked out. Yeah, and I look I've, got no, I've got no idea how they'll film it when they eventually get to multi million dollar. Film and film it on St Vincent Street. Oh no, they will have to. Well, maybe they'll, they will go to Arbroath or a tiny little uh, town. Well, yeah, Auchin Lake Talbot's Park or something like that. Yeah, Martin Martin Comston, I, I would imagine, might be in there. My my favourite bit of any classified football results is when the Scottish Cup first round happens, and you do get Bucky Thistle, and I went to see. Edinburgh University against Brora Rangers. It was incredible. Edinburgh scored, Brora scored instantly, and then Edinburgh equalised in the last minute. So watching the Scottish Cup, I would recommend. I don't know what your nearest non... I know you live near Kilmarnock, you live next to Rugby Park, but can you watch football elsewhere? Well, I I, I, I did go to to Ibrooks every now and again. My son is over coaching in America at the moment. Oh, whereabouts? Uh, he's in Seattle. Very nice. So big on women's football, um, Seattle. Yeah, I did, he's he, he's been telling. He's only been there for five weeks, but he's been telling us that there's quite the the, the female game in, in America. Uh, judging by the camps that they've run and the clubs that they've been in, um, there's there's far more uh, young girls getting involved in the game. Than, yeah, they're than they're boys. fifteen twenty years ahead oh, over there. They're way ahead. Yeah. And, and he's, you know, he, he's talking about the quality of the plays is incredible for the age, you know. Um, <laughs> but he managed and, and coached an under nineteen team locally in Kilmarnock, so I used to go and watch them quite a lot. I mean, they, they're they're on the verge, I think, of their senior teams on the verge of potentially thinking about going to the juniors. It's a big commitment, obviously, and financially, it's there's a whole load of things that you you have to be able to satisfy and stuff. So. It's a big challenge for them, but it's a really well-run club. And they've got their own community ground now, and they've got a couple of former Kilmarnock players as the manager and the coach. So, um, you never know. So w- you're saying what they need is a local carpet merchant, perhaps with the slogan, Piles Better, to swoop in. I just wanted to pick up a couple of things from the first bit of the book that I've read. Uh, Danny Garvey, at least 
in his recollection, remembers of being a kid. Cause so uh, very good as a kid, gets injured, um, life happens, goes back to football. When I put on the number 10 shirt, sorry, that was a very brief summary of your work. Uh, when I put on the number 10 shirt, I was special. They all said it. I was in total control with the ball at my feet. It was an escape from all the other tortures. I, I liked that because you got inside the psyche of Danny very early on. So you know that there was stuff going on in the scenes with his family and indeed Higgy, who is an uncle figure, kind of a vuncular yeah. Scotch uncle figure. Um, but yes, things happen with some plot. Uh, and amongst yeah. that, uh, you've got this really vivid, just signifiers. Um, Malcolm Allison is mentioned. Clough and Taylor is mentioned, which is a very good reference. You've got... Uh, Higgy and Danny coming together as they're discussing the plans for the season. And I love that image of these two Scots crowding around as if they're... And if you don't, if you don't get the reference, you don't get the reference. But if you do, and I do, because I've seen the film, um, it's a really good, fun comparison. So was it difficult not to go overboard and over-footballise it? Did you always have to excise a lot of references? We don't. And uh, I say we because um, I... My editor, a guy called Wes Camel from Arenda Books, is fantastic. I mean, it was a good, it was good for me. I think um, he's been my editor for all of the books, but I think he said at the very beginning, "I don't really like football," you know. And I thought, well, if 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 I can make a story that he thinks is great, then that's part of the challenge, you know. So. Trying to think of a specific thing, there was probably elements where I would I would maybe drift into this subconscious narrative from Danny, where he's trying to talk about attitudes to football or how it's played or tactics or this and the next thing. And you know, West's probably highlighting that it's interesting in so far as the writing goes, but it's getting in the way of the story. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of getting in the way of what you're trying to say about his mental position and stability you know so he's great for that can't take the credit for it's always the a team editorial. effort i would so, love to no, talk- absolutely yeah. yeah yeah i mean you know if, if um, any, anybody anybody who tells you i think anybody writer who tells you that they don't need a good editor is lying well you've got editors think- is it was it hemingway's editor wrote a book talking about how brilliantly his job I think it was Hemingway. You know, you learn you learn more about the editorial uh, angle the older you know the, the further into it you get. You know, but you you still need that critical eye. Um, there still needs to be. You spend so much time with a book. You know, it's about, it's about at least a year out of your life, or at least it is for me anyway. You get too close to it. You do. You know, there, there's that. Um, roller coaster of this is the best thing anybody's ever written changes into this is absolute shite and I don't <laughs> want to show it to anybody in the space of about an hour and that that if you were trying to describe the right the fiction writer's life while he's writing it's like that all the time it goes rubbish great rubbish great and at the end of the process and the end of um, your own um, drafting and editing you're kind of in a position where you're a bit punch drunk with it. You really need someone else to be able to try and filter what it is you've written, you know? Um, it's just, it's, it's a weird thing. And yet, um, uh, surviving the draft are lines about football songs 
uh, which should be knees-up novelty sing-alongs, not too serious. Euro 96 that your characters are watching on telly feels like the Falklands all over again. Uh, one goalkeeper, um, in fact, the only goalkeeper at the club, struggles with the back pass rule, and it's 1996. That's how awful they are, because the back pass rule, as you know, came in in 1992. Um, but yeah. there's a particular line which you just drop in... Um, Football, going to watch football at that level is for those too intimidated and too poor for the golf club, which I love because that is true. You see men, I go to non-league games at St Albans and Wealdstone and you do see men that my dad was captain of a golf club. I know the kind of person who's at a golf club. I know the kind of person who hangs out with a beer at a step two non-league ground. There's a difference. However, you talk about how or your characterise people yearn for something they can belong to. Now you've only got thirty seconds for this because we need to get onto football literature, and I need to give you your library card. Can we fix society just by giving people stuff to belong to? Because elite football is not it. I don't want to belong to elite football. No, me, me neither. And I'm having written that having written that line. I'm, I'm kind of you know you, you you have to be wary of belonging to things nowadays because down that path ends up sort of tribal attitudes to other people you know um, I think I think football I mean, there's, another, there's another phrase in it that's trying to put football in some degree of context that uh, if, if treated right, if treated correctly allows you to escape from the kind of madness of um, you know normal life and for a wee while, just live on an island with a whole load of other people who are a bit like-minded for ninety minutes, you know. And I think that's great. And that, and that's to some extent, that's what being a football fan means to me. I think the problem is where does the football fan start, and where does the organisation that attracts them, you know, begin? You know, it's, it's a question of values, I think. And I guess it would be daft for me to run away from the fact that. Rangers as a club have often attracted people that I think I, I, I wouldn't want to identify with, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's a political thing or whether it's, you know, an attitude to, you know, a sectarian thing. It's, it's not, these are not people I identify with. But I love the club and I love, you know, that, that why do you become a football fan? It's buried back in memory and relationships and you know family and all these other kind of things it's hard to walk away from it you know even though there are elements of it that um, potentially I don't want to identify with you know but I don't know it's it's, I know that's a a certain question you've asked about identity and I I don't know it's complicated like a lot of things in life it's it's complicated to hit the nail on the head well I know know, I'm very interested in how the professional footballer who makes his money playing the game actually gets on with the fanatic who doesn't play the game, cannot influence yeah. a match whatsoever, but is being entertained. And I, really, I think that's the next big question. What are you a fan of? Does it matter that I can walk to Vicarage Road and yet there are people in East Asia who either stay up or get up at stupid o'clock in order to watch them. They're just as much a fan as I am. I'm also talking on August 10th. This is the day that the Watford Jewish fans group has come into existence. And I'm delightful to be a part of that. It's me, Miles Jacobson from Football Manager, a liberal rabbi, Rabbi Pete Tobias, who does Pause for Thought on Radio 2, 
Uh, and then a hundred other assorted Jewish fans, because there's... And in fact, my Uncle Clive will be part of that if he wants to be. And my cousin Joe, who is being bar this year. So there, there yeah. are tribes within tribes within tribes, but ultimately you're all part of one uh, tribe. Well, there's maybe a differentiation, though, between fans and customers. Yeah. You know, um, I, I think fans are... You know, fa- fans are... are, are the group of people who will follow the club through thick and thin, they, they, you know, they, they get the potentially get the least out of it, put the most in, you know, um, not only financially but also, um, you know, their their, their, emo- put the, their emotional investment is far greater. I think customers, on the other hand, are people who uh, are, are perhaps uh, enticed by what the advertising people have done for a particular club or for a particular, um, you know, brand or the way the football is represented. And I think I, I kind of had a wee, had a discussion with someone on another, uh, another forum not that long ago about wondering whether the pandemic would change football forever insofar as advertising companies would see the opportunity to not have fans on the ground at all, you know, because for for some of the clubs in the bigger leagues, the money's a drop in the ocean. You know, the, the fans' money doesn't actually matter anymore. And if you were in a situation where, let's say, your your, your fans were being abusive to other players, or you know there was racist elements in your your uh, your fan base, then owner, owners could maybe take the view that actually it's better of, it's better off for us not to have fans in the stadium because we're not going to get banned from Europe or a Super League or whatever, and if you can't have them in for the pandemic, as as actually started to happen, you know, why you could see GI and a, a a fan base in the background, and apart unless you were in the stadium, no one would know, no one would know the difference, do you know? Yeah. And I, I thought that was the what the the biggest worrying point for football in the pandemic that people who control the finances of the game and don't really care about anything other than the top five leagues in, in Europe would start to think, do you know what, that's actually quite a good idea. And I, I'm fairly convinced that if that Super League thing had gone ahead, that would have been an outcome of it. I agree. You don't actually have fans travelling regularly. Um, atmosphere is created in other ways, you know. Yeah, it, just, saw, it, yeah. Highlights, it highlights how totally pointless that whole that whole idea was, you know. I thought a few years ago the best thing to do is follow your local club. Unfortunately, the closest club to yeah. me play in a league where they get one hundred and fifty million pound just for showing up. The front three is a yeah. Senegalese, a Colombian, this kid Cucho, who's never actually played a first team game for Watford as we speak, but we've known how good he is. Uh, and then Troy Deeney with his face. Troy's got a book out called Redemption. Do you fancy reading Troy's book all about his story? <laughs> I'm sure he's a really interesting guy, but probably not. Well, I think too short. Don't get me wrong, he's, he's, a, he's a really interesting geezer. You know, yeah. I, I can see that right away. Oh, I apologise to him through you. I didn't mean to demean uh, his, his story. It's probably just that I'm not... I, I'm, Probably not that much of a fan of football biographies, to be honest. Well, yes, and I know this because when you brought out There's Only One Danny Garvey, uh, which I think is why well, I got mine on three £3.79 on Kindle. I should have had uh, the gumption to buy it when it was 99 pence, but I'm an idiot. Um, it is available physically, published by 
Orenda books, who are based in West Dulwich, which is interesting in itself. Yes. But uh, as part of it, The Guardian let you pick your top 10 football books. And you said at the beginning that you don't like ghost-written footballers' memoirs, or as someone uh, accurately said it, books where the footballer is staring at the lens very close to the camera. Um, yeah. So um, the facial yeah. close-up. So you prefer other books. Uh, obviously, Fever Pitch, you say, what a pity it had to be Arsenal. Uh, and you also <laughs> pick The Damned United... <laughs> Obviously, I prefer yeah. the script. I prefer Peter Morgan's script to the book because David Peace is unreadable. Unreadable. He is unreadable. Read it. Unreadable. Uh, you pick a couple of novels. Uh, if someone could only take one out of the library, would it be Danny Rhodes's book, Fan, Barry Hines' book, The Blinder, or Roddy Doyle's book, The Van? Uh, it would be Barry Haynes and I'll tell you the reason why when my mum died when I was really young and, and my dad remarried we moved from Glasgow to Kilmarnock and lived in a flat uh, above a shop above a row of shops actually in a really really rough area of Kilmarnock called Ontank for which you might remember a fairly infamous television programme called The Scheme um, which was filmed there I, I guess to my shame at the time and, and trying to um, align myself with new kids around uh, around that area, I got involved in a robin spree uh, one time, breaking into the shops underneath the flat that I lived in. How stupid was mm-hmm. that? And the shop that we broke into was a small community library. Uh, <laughs> thinking thinking that there may have been money in it and thinking that there may have been <laughs> other things. But the only no. thing I stole from that library was... Barry Hines' book, The Blinder. I still have that book. Uh, I, I suppose I've got a lot to be thankful to it for because probably that and maybe a couple other books when I was younger kind of turned me on to reading. I didn't read a lot when I was a kid. There wasn't a lot of books kicking around the house. Um, but having stolen this book from the library down the stairs, I figured that I should at least read it, and I loved it. I'd and never heard I, of it. I, I know Kez, Kester for an Ave, but this is about the flawed genius Lenny Hook, uh, written in the 1960s, so probably reeks of Woodbine and what was it, Ralgex, Ralgex? Yeah, yeah, and you know, that, that, been... that time, you know, players, even for big clubs, went to the pub after the game and the fans were there and, you know, just a different, a, a, a kind of different um, era, obviously, um, post-war England in, in the north, I kind of probably grew up uh, musically through the jam and the smiths and you know there was a lot of resonance in terms of writers and uh, books that I was interested in and I still am actually um, whether it's Billy Lyre or you know some of the other classics from that time but I I think uh, Barry Hines is a phenomenal writer and actually played the game at a reasonable level himself you know I I think that book's better than Kez but that's maybe just because of the personal relationship I've got with it. So I'm glad you picked. I'm glad you gave me a choice of the three with that one in it because that yeah. it would definitely be that one Easy every job. day of the week. Uh, I think there's a memoir of Barry Hines that's just come out. The Blind have written at Loughborough when he was a teacher. Finished it there. Um, it yeah. actually came before it, and it is a. I'm going to try and find it in a library. It came out in 1966, um, and it was a Penguin paperback. So it's it's delightful that we've got Hines. Uh, not too far away from Ross, but this will be in the literature section of the library, which is the, off the top of my head, 800s? 
Okay. Along with A Natural by Ross Raisin, which is about homosexuality and football, along with The Van by Roddy Doyle, uh, along with this book Fan by Danny Rhodes, which is fiction based on PTSD and Hillsborough, which is it seems, yeah. seems very interesting. Uh, every magazine and every podcast from Nutmeg, uh, plus Danny Gray's three or f- uh, well, four books. You've got The Three Little Ones and Stramash, um, Annie's book on travelling the country's grounds. But Danny Gray... The genius of prosaic yeah. football writing. Oh, you know Daniel, yeah. Okay. Ah, yeah, I know. Yeah, we had him in. Had him in the library. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he, he's he's brilliant. I think um, I'm sure Daniel's been the moderator at two of the gigs I've done at Edinburgh Festival now. He was definitely. Where I first met. Yeah, he was the one I was at, and he's yes, a, a North East Englander who has made his home uh, in Edinburgh and amongst the um, difficult. Uh, Scottish grounds, uh, Dreek, the Greek Scottish grounds, the the kind that um, Barshaw Bridge, um, Barshaw Bridge uh, would um, are envious of, I think. Yeah. Um, but uh, on your football library card, David F. Ross, uh, it could only be Kilmarnock's very own Hugh McIlvanny, the late Hugh. Um, I yeah. didn't know his sons and his grandson wrote crime fiction. Are they any good? Well, William McIlvanny, his brother is the godfather of Scottish crime writing. He they lived around the corner from us and uh in, in the same difficult area for a while. Hugh McIlvanny, uh, probably greatest sports writer ever I would think, was his brother. Neil is I think, I, I think Neil was Hugh's son and Neil McIlvanny was my English teacher. Oh wow um, and we played football in the same you know, from the days when you know young English teachers weren't that older, weren't that much older than their pupils, we played football briefly together as well in the same team. And Liam McIlvanny, who's William's son, is a fantastic crime writer. Now, um, Liam lives in New Zealand and is a professor in of you know uh, in Scottish studies actually, and in, in a university in New Zealand. But he, you know, he's a fin- he's a phenomenal crime writer in his own and to bring it back to someone we were talking about earlier on Ian Rankin's new book I am plugging all these other another new books book here. don't plug Rankin's yeah. books people will read that oh, one. wait a minute no, wait, wait a minute this, this one I think this one is definitely worth checking out Ian Rankin has uh, finished uh, an unfinished William McIlvanny book oh. so the Ian Rankin book that comes out later on this year is a is a joint effort between William McIlvanny and him. It's a kind of unfinished story of the character Laidlaw, who was McIlvanny's famous um, character. I, I I know Ian a bit. That must be phenomenal for him, you know, just to have the opportunity to do that. I'm sure he I'm sure he's acutely aware of the responsibility it brings as well. But mm. there's nobody better, I think, to to be working together on a on a William McIlvanny. The book is you know. called The Dark Remains, Laidlaw's First Case. If the truths in the shadows get out of the light. Oof. Uh, and it yeah. comes out at the very beginning of September. Uh, you'll know it's out because Rankin always does press. You know when an Ian Rankin book comes out because he is, apart from Richard Osman, uh, the Don Daddy of uh, Scottish crime fiction. Although David F. Ross, yeah. uh, you, you tend not to do crime. You tend to do capers and uh, um, kitchen sink dramas. Uh, I don't know. What would you I, classify I, your books as? I, I, I don't really know. I mean, I, I think I think they're character-driven. You know, they're, they're investigations of people's character, I suppose. Mm. That sounds shite, doesn't it? I mean, I should have a better rehearsed answer for that. I quite like the fact that it's 
literary fiction and it doesn't necessarily fit an easy genre, if you know what I mean. I, well, yeah, uh, Dougie Brimson writes similar books, character-led studies for people who... Not that your literature, your audience don't necessarily read, but I don't know if you know Dougie's stuff. Um, um, I don't. No. Uh, I will. I will check. Yeah. Yeah. Um, lots of um, character-driven literary fiction, uh, but yes, Hugh McIlvany, you say his prose was high art. You compare it to Brazil's 1970 prose, and I just wanted to finish just after plugging. There's only one Danny Garvey, which hasn't been plugged enough on this football library visit. Um, you. <laughs> have written several pieces that are available on your website davidfross.co.uk there's a brilliant one about the smiths and the beatles um which time doesn't allow me to go into but you talk about and i think this was the one published in nutmeg the best goal you've ever seen and i think it was the context of where you saw it that makes it the best goal you've ever seen so let's take you back to 1970 you're a wee uh somewhere in in uh, west of scotland and you're watching Brazil against Italy. Where are you watching it and what happens? Well, we were watching it um, with my dad uh, and a lot of his mates from the railway. My dad worked in the railway in Glasgow Central. We lived in a fourth floor tenement flat, uh, very close to Hamden Park uh, in Mount Florida. And it's my first memory of watching any football. My dad had managed to get a hold of a colour television by swapping, uh, and, and he only got a loan in this colour television. It wasn't a colour television for, for, you know, as a gift, but he swapped a loan of the colour television for this one game, the Brazil-Italy match, to watch it in, in colour uh, for a budget that we had. Um, we had a Virtually everybody in Glasgow at that, <laughs> the budgies couldn't get out, but nevertheless, everybody I know seemed to seemed to have a bird in a cage for some reason. I, I know my dad had no time for this thing, so um, he swapped it for uh, colour television. So there was probably there was about 11 people and me on my, my sitting in, in, you know, in front of it watching uh, this uh, colour, day glow colour television set Brazil beat Italy. And of course, colour uh, TV had just come in in 1970, really. It was the well, first World Cup uh, yeah, and it, well, and it, it was nothing like the high res, uh, high high. Yeah, it was like uh, a four inch box. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and the stuttering, you know, stuttering picture, and the colours are all magnified to the point where they would give you a headache, yeah. you know. Um, but it just, it just, it was amazing. I mean, it felt like it was coming from another planet. Never mind another part of this planet, you know. It was just so captivating watching it, even at that age. I mean, I was only, I would have only been seven or something like that. Um, even at that age, you, you could kind of tell they were playing a, a type of game nobody had ever seen. Do you know, I could mm-hmm. tell from the reaction that the adults in the room that this was just unbelievable. And the more you, the more you you go back and watch that, and I think football does this. You know, people who are interested in football and, and have got pinpoint memories of where they were and how they felt when certain things happen. It's usually. I, I think it's usually because of who they were with, uh, and that, that that kind of camaraderie between father and son, I think, was was a pretty big deal. I mean, I'm sure they were all drunk, to be honest, because that would have been part of the course by then. But I think that excitement of it's the first time I can remember watching football at all, you know. And obviously, the goal that I was talking about was the Carlos Alberto one at the end. Mm-hmm. But I, I think. The, the description that I gave to Nutmeg of that was 
actually his part in it was the bit that was of least interest to me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was everything else that was going on in that move. Well, of course, because you didn't, you couldn't see Carlos Alberto on the telly because he snuck in off screen, unseen, yeah. incredibly. Yeah. Whereas now you'd get the overhead camera tracking every move, and it would be be less fun. I'm going to let you go and watch or listen to or follow uh, the end of the Rangers-Malmo game. Uh, but can I just yeah. clear up one thing? I am no relation to Desmond Brick, who is a character in the Miraculous <laughs> Vespers. I've no, never heard of him. I don't want to be associated with him. He doesn't sound like a nice bloke. <laughs> unlike you. Unlike you. Oh, bless you. You can come back to the Football Library. Can you say what you're working on? We're half, halfway through the design of the biggest hospital in Scotland at the moment. And importantly, given the context of the last 48 hours of news, the, the, the first zero carbon hospital, hopefully, in the UK. Oh, wow. Well, that's not a place I want to come and visit. But, um, oh, look, we've run out of time and we haven't discussed Scottish independence, which is the reason I actually left Edinburgh. I was there for five years, 2006 to 2011. I thought, I don't want to be here for any referendum I'm leaving. But because I was there five years, I've got honorary citizenship of Scotland. So if I want to come up to Killy, I know exactly where to head. And uh, maybe I'll head to one of these festivals. Do you want to plug those, the festivals that you're Um, doing this autumn? um, I can't remember the names. Some of the Tidelines Festival is an East Ayrshire one. Um, That's in September, I think. Um, I've got another one... um, which is uh, a live gig, believe it or not, um, in call, a place called Stereo, which is a bit yeah, like I know Stereo. Yeah, yeah. in Glasgow. That's the 14th of September, I think. And another one, the 15th of November. I've got a terrible memory, but I've got them in my diary. 15th of November is Book Week. I think Book Week Scotland. Um, so I've got a gig there holding a, a writing tutorial class for people who want to come along, hear a wee bit of me uh, reading. And that's in, I think, the Dick Institute in Kilmarnock. Ooh, very nice. And uh, there is a Twitter account, naturally. All news will be put on there, but it's DFR10. Is that binary yes. 10 or are you the 10th DFR? No, uh, it's, it's, it's just a favourite number, to be honest. Oh, okay. um, it's, it's the number I used to play when I played football. So Danny and I have got that in common on my registration plate, you know. So, yeah, just a favourite a favorite number. I see. And just to finish, there is no way that I'm going to pass up the opportunity that I've just learned about to blast to the past in the last days of disco. Bobby and Joey's new mobile disco business seems like the answer to everything until they lock horns with the local gangster UK Kindle monthly deal uh, from Arenda Books, 99p. I've just bought The Last Days of Disco. For 99 pence, you're worth more than that, David. It's, the, it's the most astonishing, that, that's the most astonishing bargain anybody would ever, would ever get. That's like a library!